Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn to 2 Kings 25. That is where we're going to begin tonight. We're going to have to do some theology at the beginning of the night. We're going to read a little bit of 2 Kings, and then we're going to go do a bunch of reading again from Jeremiah, and then we're going to come back to 2 Kings to close out the night. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be hearing a lot about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar looms very large in Old Testament history, not only because he is responsible for the deportation of the Judahites out of Judea and out of Jerusalem in successive waves, but also because he destroys the temple that Solomon built. And also, as you probably know, in the book of Daniel, which we'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks, in the book of Daniel, he is given not only a dream that Daniel interprets as the succession of kingdoms following Nebuchadnezzar, but he is also made crazy by God because he believes that Babylon has been built by his own hand. God makes him crazy, makes him eat grass, and makes his hair grow out like feathers and his nails grow out like eagle's talons. And he remains in that state for a while until he comes to realize that the God of heaven is in charge of everything. So there are folks who speculate that Nebuchadnezzar was a saved man. Tonight we're going to see God call him my servant. And so there are people who speculate whether Nebuchadnezzar was ultimately saved by God or whether he remained in his not knowing God state even though God used him the same way that Cyrus was predicted by name and then God said I will use you you're my anointed he calls him Cyrus my anointed and yet he says though you haven't known me you do not know me so there are two sides of that argument whether or not Nebuchadnezzar is saved I don't think we're going to resolve that question tonight But whichever opinion you happen to hold, good for you, because the Bible simply doesn't tell us. Now, we talk a lot here at GCA about God being sovereign. We use the word sovereign a lot. And the reason that we do that is because we believe that he is in charge of everything. God is in charge of his universe. He's in charge of his planet. He's in charge of the people on the planet. And regardless of whether you're from a more Calvinistic background or a more Arminian background, you're still going to admit that God is all-knowing. Even people who believe that they, by their free will, choose Jesus, they still say that God knew they were going to do it, that God is all-knowing. Now, there is a, a subset of what is called Christianity that I don't really think is truly biblically Christian, but there is a subset of Christianity that believes that God does not know everything, that God, in fact, learns as he goes. He created the universe, he put men on the planet, and now he's watching to see what men will do, and that whatever they do at any given moment, God learns that that's what men do in this situation. But the vast majority of Christianity, of pretty much all stripes, believes that God knows everything. Now, they may say that God knows everything in a sort of foretelling, predictive, Gene Dixon kind of way, that he looks down the long telescope of time and he sees what's going to happen so that he's taking in the information passively, and that's what gives him the ability to prophesy the future. But the Bible says that God declares the future, He doesn't just know it. He doesn't just observe it. He says what's going to happen and then sets about with his almighty power to make sure that what he has predicted actually occurs, which he could only do if he is, in fact, in charge of everything. Because if at any point any person is free to not do what God has declared, 
well, then there is the possibility that God would be wrong. God would say, this is going to happen. And then a couple generations later, someone says, no, I'm not going to do that. God would be powerless to change their mind, and he'd just simply be wrong. So we believe that God's sovereignty extends to every aspect of human life and human decision-making, and that God's will is always done. So now we've kind of established that all Christianity accepts the idea that God knows everything that happens. Now, the other thing that people all agree with within the Christian wider community is that God is in charge of how long people live, that God is in charge of how many breaths you get, how many heartbeats. It's God who decides when you're going to be born and where you're going to be born, and that it's God who determines when you're ultimately going to die. God is in charge of how long people live. So put those two things together, and here's the conundrum that I am trying to create. I had a conversation this past Sunday after church with one of our members, and he said that since I've come to understand God's sovereignty, it has given me a great deal of comfort and a great deal of confidence that I can get through these tough times because bad things do occur, tough things do occur, and if God is not in charge of them, well, then that just happened randomly, and it happened without purpose. But if God is in charge of the bad things that happen, well, then he's giving me the strength, the power, the purpose for taking me through that bad thing. And what we're about to read tonight is just full of bad stuff. There's just a lot of bad stuff that happens here. And God takes complete credit for it. And this is the place where we, where we have a bit of a conflict <coughs> As people who do believe in God's absolute sovereignty, when dealing with those who might say, well, God has a certain amount of power, but men are still free to do whatever they want. When the question of bad stuff happening comes up, they have a difficulty with it. But if God knows everything, then he knows every man who's going to do a bad thing, right? And if God's in charge of how long they live, then he could have actually killed them before they did the bad thing. But God allowed them to continue living, even though he knew full well that they were about to do a really terrible thing. So I would argue that even the staunchest Arminian, once he admits to God's all-knowing, and once he admits that God's in charge of people living and dying, that he has to also admit that when bad things happen in this lifetime, it must serve God's ultimate purpose, or else God would have stopped it. But the fact that he doesn't stop it, the fact that he allows it to happen, that's what we were discussing on Sunday after church. The fact that he allows it to happen means that it does have purpose. And I know for me, that was a, a huge awakening moment when I came to realize that the suffering, the trials, the problems of this life actually have purpose, well, then I was able to agree with Paul when he would say things like, there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not tempt you beyond what you are able, but will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Okay, well, you can only say that if you believe in God's sovereignty, that he sovereignly, purposefully brought about the trouble, but then also brought about the way of escape and is going to bring about the endurance to go through it because God is faithful. You can't say that and not see that God is absolutely sovereign in all things. Well, terrible things are about to happen in Jerusalem. And God is going to use Nebuchadnezzar to come down on Jerusalem and destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem. And many, many, many people died. And yet God's going to take complete credit for it. God's going to say, I did this. I did it through Nebuchadnezzar. I planned all this. This is my punishment on Israel for the way they have behaved. God takes complete and sovereign credit for it. And I think this is why so many folks have so much difficulty with the Old Testament because God does act like this. 
And unless you see him as absolutely sovereign, able to do whatever he wants with what is his, and recognizing that everything is his, and therefore he can do whatever he wants, and therefore all these terrible things have purpose, then you can begin to understand the Bible aright. But when you think about God in human terms, then much of what God does just seems innately unfair. I feel sometimes, I feel kind of guilty because I have a pretty good life. Uh, yeah, there have been those bumps in the road, a couple of hospitalizations or, you know, a little tragedy here and there. And okay, well, that makes for a full life. But as I look back over my life, I got to say, it's been a pretty good life. Even at my brokest, I never went truly hungry. I've never slept on the street. I've always had at least one car. And I've always had somebody I could call. I could always call somebody if I was in trouble and say, help me out. So I, I've really had a very blessed life. And when I look at, say, folks on the other side of the planet who are dying for their Christianity, who are dying for their testimony, I start to feel guilty. I feel like, well, that's innately not fair. Because I'm, I'm living a, a very agreeable life, and I'm professing Christ. And there are people openly professing Christ who I am confident believe every bit as much as I do, and yet they're being persecuted and killed for it. But the more I read the Bible, the more I see periods of time when God was phenomenally good to whole generations of people. Think about the people who lived and had children during the reigns of Solomon or the reign of David there in Jerusalem. Well, they had great lives. Everything was good in those days. They had protection from their enemies. They were living in the land of milk and honey. They had protection from the wild animals, and God was making them the greatest kingdom in the Middle East at that moment. So they had good lives. Now God is about to destroy Everything good about Jerusalem and living under the, the kings who were the posterity of David. He's about to bring them into captivity. And there's going to be an entire generation, 70 years, of people who are going to live in Babylon, in bondage. What's the difference? What's the difference between those people who lived under Solomon and David and those people who live in Babylon? Well, there's no difference in God. God's still God doing what God sovereignly does. But there are people who live and die in those 70 years in Babylon. Jeremiah is going to tell them, when you get there to Babylon, you might as well marry and have kids and set up housekeeping. And you might as well do your business because you're going to be there a while. Don't expect you're leaving anytime soon. It's going to be 70 years. You might as well get comfortable there. He's going to go so far as to say that they ought to pray for their Babylonian captors because if Babylon prospers, they will prosper. So it's good for them to pray for Babylon. Well, I think this is where Paul gets the idea of praying for our leaders, praying for those in authority, for kings and for governors so that we can live a quiet life. I don't think God's going to save everybody in the Congress. But I pray for them because if they make good rules, I live a quieter life. So whether Old Testament or New Testament, the concept is still the same. The only reason that you're praying to God so that you can lead a quiet life is because you have to recognize that he's in charge. He's the one you pray to. He's the sovereign of the universe. He's in charge of kings and governors and congress and presidents. He's the one who is in charge. Whether it's the massive blessings of the time of Solomon and David or whether it's the time of captives in Babylon, Jeremiah can continue to say, God's in charge. God is faithful. God is doing exactly what he's determined to do. And that makes me feel better about my good life. I just happen to be one of those people who is living in a time, in a place, in a country where I've had a pretty good life. And there are some people on the planet right now who are living in a time, in a place, in a country where they're not having as, as comfortable a time of it as I am. 
And it kind of relieves my guilt because I realize God is sovereign. And when I go through trials, I realize God is sovereign. And if the church undergoes persecution in America, God is sovereign. And whatever happens to us, God is still in charge. And he takes credit for being in charge. So I said all that by way of introduction to say, as we're reading all this bad stuff, you're going to see God say, it's me, it's me, I'm doing all this. I take responsibility for all this. And we need to wrap our heads around that and recognize that whatever occurs in our lifetimes, that's what God has determined for us according to his purposes. Because that's what the Bible teaches. So starting at chapter 25 of 2 Kings. Now it came about in the ninth year of his reign on the tenth day of the tenth month that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem, camped against it, and built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the king after Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim only ruled for a very short time and then was taken into captivity. And now Nebuchadnezzar has set up this king, Zedekiah, because now he's in so much charge and rule in the Middle East that he's even establishing the kings of the various countries around him. And in Jeremiah's prophecies, he prophesies to all those nations, Ammon and Moab and Egypt and all those areas that are all going to fall under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar because God has decided that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in charge in the Middle East, not only of all the men, but he's even going to say, I give him charge over the beasts. He's the ruler. And then Nebuchadnezzar is going to rise up and say, isn't this great Babylon which my hand built? And then God's going to say, now you get to be crazy because you forgot who's in charge. So the city was under siege until the 11th year of this king Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night, by way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went by the way of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him. And they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. And so all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the king of the guard, carried away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest in the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. We're going to pick up right there, verse 13, in just a few moments. So this first wave of deportees, this is all the educated folks, all of the artisans. You're going to see Jeremiah say it in just a moment, that Nebuchadnezzar initially took all of the people who would actually make Babylon better. Well, anyway, I was going to make a joke about the Trump ban. Anyways... He actually let in the people who improved Babylon, and that was Daniel and his three friends. 
So Daniel and his companions and all the princes and all the artisans and all the people who can prove Babylon, they went in the first wave, but there were people who were left behind in order to be vine dressers and to just kind of make sure that the, the land wasn't overtaken by wild animals. And those were the people that Ezekiel was with. Ezekiel was in the second wave of deportees, and so that's why his, his uh, prophecies begin with him having visions at the river Chebar and all that. That happens after this. And we'll get back to that in just a moment. Turn to the book of Jeremiah. <laughs> Jeremiah 27 is where we're going. Because Jeremiah is going to predict that Nebuchadnezzar is going to take all the best things out of the temple. All the furniture, all the pillars of bronze, all the stuff that's of value, Nebuchadnezzar is going to take away. Now, he took some of it in this first wave, but then he's going to come back and take all of it. And this is really a big sticking point for some of the other prophets of Israel. The other prophets of Israel, the false prophets, are going to tell the Israelites, no, 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 he's never going to take the temple. That's God's house. He's never going to take all the furnishings out of the temple. And in fact... There's one that we're going to read about tonight that goes so far as to say, this is two years at the most. Two years. And then everything comes back. And Jeremiah is going to withstand him and say, no, false prophet, 70 years. They're going to be in Babylon. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, the reason we're starting at verse 27 is because Zedekiah is named right there. So we know that this is contemporary with Zedekiah being king. Thus says the Lord to me, make for yourself bonds and yokes and put them on your neck and send word to the king of Edom, to the king of Moab, to the kings of the sons of Ammon, to the king of Tyre and to the king of Sidon by the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and command them to go to their masters, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth, by my great power and by my outstretched hand, I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Now that's the NASB. Some of your translations say, I'll give it to whoever I please, which I think is a more accurate translation of the phrase. So verse 5 is God declaring the theology of himself. And his theology of himself is, I'm sovereign. I made everything. I own everything. I'm in charge of everything. And I will do with it as I please. What did David say about him? He said, the fool has said in his heart, where is your God? Our God is in the heavens. He does what? Whatever he pleases. Whatever he pleases. So here's Jeremiah saying the same thing. Start by telling your various heathen kings, your unbelieving kings, go and say, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. And I now have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. I have given him also the wild animals of the field, to serve him and all the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. So there's a period of time here. I'm going to make Nebuchadnezzar greater than all the kings of the Middle East. So go tell all the kings of the Middle East. Don't even fight. Don't even argue. I have declared that Nebuchadnezzar is king. 
And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. And all the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. So God's specific. It's going to be him. It's going to be his son. It's going to be his grandson, but it's not going to be an everlasting dynasty. There's going to be a limit to it. Now, we know, because we know the historical record, that it's going to be the Medo-Persians that conquer Babylon. And Isaiah, 150 years in advance, names Cyrus, the Persian king, by name and says that he's going to conquer Babylon and then he's going to let the children of Israel come back to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And sure enough, <laughs> who'd have guessed, that's exactly what happens. So God is not only showing that he's in control of what happens right now, but he's in charge of everything that's about to happen and going to happen and future happenings. It's all under his jurisdiction. Verse 8, And it will be that the nation or the kingdom which will not serve him, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have destroyed it by his hand. Okay, that's bad stuff. That's really, really bad stuff. Now, notice what God did. He made Jeremiah first make a yoke. Remember the beginning of the chapter? He said, make a yoke. Walk around with this yoke on your shoulders. You're going to use it as a, a visual lesson for the people you're talking to. They're going to say, what does that yoke mean? Well, it means that all the kings of all the nations are going to be under the yoke of Babylon. And if they're not voluntarily placing themselves under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I'm going to punish that nation. Because I am going to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar has complete rule over the Middle East. But as for you, verse 9, but as for you, do not listen to your prophets your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers who speak to you saying that you shall not serve the king of Babylon. There are going to be plenty, as we're going to see in a minute, there are going to be plenty of prophets who are going to say, no, 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 Jeremiah's wrong. What does Jeremiah know? No, we're strong. Come on, we're Ammon. No one's coming up against us. We're, we're, we can do it. Jeremiah says, no, God is going to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar is going to rule over this whole area, and if you don't, there's going to be famine, and there's going to be pestilence, and there's going to be sword. And unless you see God is absolutely sovereign, you can't deal with that. Unless you understand that it's up to God to do whatever he wants with everything that's his, you can't deal with that. If your concept of God is only God is love, then you can't deal with that. How do you explain a God who would say, I'm bringing pestilence and sword and famine on you. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy your kingdom. How do you deal with a God who says things like that? You can only deal with it if you understand God's sovereignty, that he's in charge of the world that is his. So don't listen to your dreamers and soothsayers and sorcerers. Verse 10, for they prophesy a lie to you in order to remove you far from your land. And I will drive you out, and you will perish. But the nation which will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let remain on its land, declares the Lord, and they will till it, and they will dwell in it. Now notice in verse 10 there that God did say that there are going to be people, dreamers, Soothsayers, prophets, diviners, sorcerers, there are going to be people who are going to say, thus says the Lord. And he said, they lie. They all lie. Now, these days, it's a little more obvious. But there sure seems to be a lot of non-discerning people out there. Because some of these folks say such outrageous things. I used to laugh with Tom about the fact that when we were in California, there was a nut on every street corner, which is okay in and of itself, 
but every nut on every corner found five or ten other nuts to follow him. It was crazy. And now you have nuts with satellite TV stations and <laughs> arenas, and, and they stand up and say, thus says the Lord, and thousands of people flock to them. Why? Because they tell them good things. God wants nothing for you but good. God wants you not to suffer. God wants you to be comfortable. God plans to make your life a big feather bed. Everything you ever want, God wants to give you. You can control angels. You can command angels to do your bidding. You're in charge here, not God. Well, that's the same thing they were saying back there. They were saying, no, God would never let Nebuchadnezzar rule this whole area. He would never wipe out our entire kingdom and all our people. He would never do that. Okay, so go find me somebody from Tyre or Sidon. They don't exist anymore. God destroyed impregnable Tyre under Alexander the Great. And so God has the complete ability to just wipe out people groups, which is hard to hear. I started out by telling you, there's a bunch of bad news tonight. This is not the feel-good message of the week. But God, who is sovereign, can say, do it my way, or I'll wipe you out. And by the way, he still says that today. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then people will try to get to God some other way. And God will say, you didn't do it my way. I told you what my way was. So God has always been in the business of saying, this is how you do it. Whether it was the priests, when he would say the high priest can come into the Holy of Holies once a year, but he has to be dressed like this, he has to wear this underwear, he has to wear these clothes, he has to have a turban on his head with a golden plate that says holiness to the Lord, he has to have a blood sacrifice, and he has to stand in front of the Ark of the Covenant and sprinkle the blood, and he has to have the right incense, and he has to do it completely my way. Or I will not forgive Israel that year. So God is in charge of how you approach him. And he's in charge of how he doles out his justice. I got to read. But the nation which will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let remain on its land, declares the Lord. And they will till it and dwell in it. Verse 12. And I spoke words like all of these to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, saying, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, by famine, by pestilence? As the Lord has spoken to that nation, which will not serve the king of Babylon. Remember what we read in 2 Kings? That when the armies of Babylon came down, that the famine got so bad that people were trying to escape from the city. And that's how Zedekiah was ultimately captured and then taken and his sons were killed. And he was ultimately blinded because God will bring the pestilence and the sword if they don't do it his way, which was... They were supposed to just bring their necks under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, by famine, by pestilence, as the Lord has spoken to that nation which will not serve the king of Babylon? So do not listen to the words of your prophets who speak to you, saying you shall not serve the king of Babylon. There's that good news thing that the false prophets are so good at. No, you'll be fine. You'll be good. Don't worry about it. You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. For I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So does that tell you that there are prophets in the world who are saying, thus says the Lord, that God did not send? That's right. That God did not give a message? They're just making up the message they would like you to hear because if they tell you enough things that you enjoy hearing, you're more likely to write a big check and open your wallet and come back the next week. Do not listen to the words of your prophets who speak to you, saying, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. For I have not sent them, declares the Lord. But they prophesy falsely in my name, in order that I may drive you out and that you may perish, you and the prophets who prophesy to you. 
Now look at God right here saying, they prophesy falsely in my name in order that I may drive you out. These false prophets aren't ultimately bringing you good. Even though they say that they're in favor of you and they're bringing you good, they are lying to you for the cause of me ultimately punishing you and driving you out of your land. So the false prophets are not simply harmless. The false prophets are actually doing damage. Then I spoke to the priest, this is verse 16, and to all this people saying, thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought again from Babylon for they are prophesying a lie to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a ruin? It does ultimately become a ruin. But if they are prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, let them now entreat the Lord of hosts that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem may not go into Babylon. Now, Jeremiah knows, and we're about to read it from 2 Kings, he knows that all those vessels, all the valuable stuff, all the bronze, all the the treasures of the temple are all going to go to Babylon. Meanwhile, the false prophets are saying, no, it's going to be peace and safety, and even the stuff that has already been captured is going to come back to us, and, and we're fine. We don't have to worry about these things being taken out of the house of the Lord. And Jeremiah knows this is what they're going to say, and he says those are lies. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the stands, concerning the rest of the vessels that are left in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take when he carried into exile Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon and they shall be there until the day that I visit them, declares the Lord. And then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. So there's a time limit. God's going to do this. He's going to take them into Babylon, all the treasures of the king's house, all the treasures of the Lord's house, every good thing in Jerusalem is going to go into Babylon until God visits his people again and brings them back. So there's a time period here. Now, how can God say with great confidence, I know how long that's going to be, and then I'm going to bring them back here again? How can he say that unless he knows exactly what everybody's going to do? How can he say that unless he knows for certain that he has declared that the Medo-Persians are going to conquer the Babylonians and that Cyrus the Persian is going to allow the Israelites to come back and rebuild their wall and rebuild their temple? That's the time of Nehemiah. That's the time of, of the rebuilding that's coming up in 70 years from now. How, how can he declare those things unless he knows it for absolute certain? Because so far, the prophecies of the Bible have a 100% fulfillment rate. How can God know this? Because he's sovereign. Because he's in charge. And what I'm driving at tonight is he's not just in charge of the good stuff that happens. Far too many people have a concept of God that God is only in charge of the good stuff. But listen to all the bad stuff we've been reading that God says, I'm in charge of that. I'm doing that on purpose. And I'm doing it to my people. To the people that I've chosen. To Jacob, my elect. I'm doing it to the very people that I love. I'm doing it to the very city where I have chosen to place my name, to my temple where my worship goes on. I'm doing all this. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad. But God is not limited by human concepts of goodness and badness. Everything he does is predicated on his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. 
And therefore, he brings about the blessings and the problems of this life to ultimately establish his rule, his reign, his holiness on planet Earth. So then I spoke to the priest, this is verse 16, and to all the people saying, thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought again from Babylon for they are prophesying a lie to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a ruin? But if they are prophets and if the word of the Lord is with them. Let them now entreat the Lord of hosts that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem may not go to Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the stands, concerning the rest of the vessels that are left in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take when he carried into exile Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Here's what God says, yes, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon and they shall be there until the day that I visit them, declares the Lord, and then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. Go to second Kings. I told you we'd be back there. I hope you kept your finger there. Of course, no one did. You bookmarked it. You're using an electronic version. That's hardly fair. <laughs> Second Kings 25, starting at verse 8. Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the king's guard, a servant of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. And so all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest in the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Now the bronze pillars which were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea which were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke into pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the spoons and all the bronze vessels which were used in the temple service. The captain of the guard also took away the fire pans and the basins, what was very fine gold and what was fine silver. The two pillars, the one sea and the stands which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and a bronze capital was on it. And the height of the capital was three cubits, with a network and pomegranates on the capital all around, all of it bronze. And the second pillar was like these, with the network. Then the captain of the guard took Zariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, with the three officers of the temple. And from the city, he took one official who was overseer of the men of war and five of the king's advisors who were found in the city and the scribe of the captain of the army who mustered all the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And then the king of Babylon struck them all down, put them all to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was carried away into exile from its land. So what do we know? 
We know that Jeremiah said, in the book of Jeremiah, said to all the false prophets, well, if you actually did hear from God, well, then entreat God that everything we just read doesn't happen. You're the real prophets. So you go to God and you say, don't carry away everything out of the temple. And then I'll believe you're a real prophet. But you're false prophets. You're saying good to the people, even though God is saying woe to the people. So we go read it in 2 Kings. We find out that exactly what Jeremiah said would happen. That all the high and mighty and all the people were going to be taken. That the land was going to be essentially destroyed, that the temple was going to be routed, that all of the fine furnishings and all the gold and the silver and the bronze was going to be taken away to Babylon. Exactly what Jeremiah did predict is what happened. But he was a lone voice. How many times have I said to you, he preached for 40 years and never had a convert. But he was right. He was the one who was speaking for God. All the false prophets who were who were saying it's all good and don't worry about it and God would never do that. They were the ones who was wrong. They were the ones who were wrong. <laughs> I caught myself because I'm a grammarian. My kids call me a grammar cop. So Jeremiah was ultimately right and they were ultimately wrong. Go back to Jeremiah for just a moment. I hope you kept your finger there. Chapter 28. I've got a couple minutes left on the clock. I'm going to use it. Chapter 28, Jeremiah. Now, it came about in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. Okay, so we know what happened to Zedekiah. We know his sons were killed, and he was ultimately blinded. And we know all of that, but this is before that all happens, when Jeremiah is still pleading with the king and still pleading with all the surrounding kings to put their neck in the yoke of the king of Babylon. He's still wearing this yoke, this, this visual aid to try to tell people, you need to put yourself voluntarily into the yoke of the king of Babylon, or God is going to bring pestilence and famine and sword against you. In the beginning of the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet, who was from Gibeon, spoke to me, Jeremiah, in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the king of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. He couldn't be more wrong, because we just read what ultimately happens. But here he is standing up in the temple, in the house of God, among all the priests and all the people, saying good things are going to happen. And God says, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. That's not true. None of it's true. Notice, by the way, and I'm just going to throw this out there. Do with it what you want. Notice that Jeremiah is naming names. Notice that Jeremiah is saying, this guy right here, I'm going to tell you his name. I'm going to tell you who his dad is. He's wrong. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the king of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon within two years. I'm going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. That's not true. None of it's true. Seventy years at best. He says, within two years. That stuff he already took. This is before Nebuchadnezzar took all the really expensive stuff, the bronze, the gold, the silver, all that. This is when he first took a few of the, the items out of the temple. And he says, oh, that's all going to come back within two years. Verse 4, I am also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went into Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Can't you just see people saying, oh, I love this prophecy. <laughs> this prophecy feels good to me. This prophecy is what I want to hear. Can you see why? Why he'd be willing to stand up in front of all the people in the temple and say something that God did not say to him. He did not hear from God, but he was perfectly willing to put on that he was a prophet. Do I need to apply that? Because there are plenty of people saying they're speaking for God right now who are prophesying all kinds of good. 
but there's no evidence that they actually heard from God about any of this. Then the prophet, verse 5, then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and in the presence of all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord confirm your words, which you have prophesied, to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. Jeremiah is being sarcastic. <laughs> Jeremiah is saying, okay, you're saying the exact opposite of what I'm saying, but you're prophesying a good thing. So, amen, let that be the case. Yes, definitely, I hope that happens, but I got one more thing to tell you. Verse 7, yet hear now this word which I am about to speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. The prophet who prophesies of peace when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then that prophet will be known as the one whom the Lord has truly sent. So Jeremiah is setting him up for the fall. Jeremiah is saying, okay, amen, I'm with you. I hope it does come to pass. But if it doesn't, then everybody's going to know you're a false prophet. Because the proof of a prophet, according to Jeremiah, is what they say happens. That if God speaks to them, again, God is sovereign. God declares the future and then puts his almighty power to work to make sure that happens. Therefore, there wouldn't be any question about it. If it's from God, it's absolutely true and it's absolutely going to happen. But if a prophet says, thus says the Lord, and it doesn't happen, that's a false prophet. Need I apply this again? there are a lot of people saying a whole lot of thus says the Lord and it never happens it just never occurs okay I'm going to give you a, a really current example well really current in the last few years is there anybody here that's a big fan of Benny Hinn is it okay if I talk about Benny Please. okay just want to make sure I'm not offending anybody church was three miles from where we lived so you're a big Benny Hinn fan clearly then okay Especially the traffic. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, so Benny went to Africa a few years ago. And he went on TBN before he went to Africa. And he said that Jesus would appear with him on the platform in Africa. Never happened. Didn't happen. Okay, has Benny Hinn still got a ministry? Yes. Yes! Isn't that remarkable? If he ever had one. Everybody should say... Okay, that's a false prophet. Jeremiah says so. God says so. That's a false prophet. You prophesied what was going to happen, and it didn't happen. Well, then you're a false prophet. For all the people who he's ever bopped on the head and said, there you're healed, and they weren't healed, there you're a false prophet. So now you need to shut up and go away. I think he didn't he do that. I think he did that Jehovah's Witness claim on that one. He basically, well, he was there. You just, you just didn't. Come yeah, you just didn't see him. You just didn't notice him. Yeah, just, just duck and cover. Oh, I got to read. God let you go. So Jeremiah has set this guy up for the fall. Verse 9, the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke off the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. So he says, here's my visual aid. You're walking around with a yoke on your neck to say that the kings ought to willingly put the yoke of, of Nebuchadnezzar on themselves. But I say God's going to break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. So I take the yoke off you and I break it there. That proves my point. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so I will break within two years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. Then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. 
And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off his neck, from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah. And God said, go and speak to Hananiah, saying, thus says the Lord, you have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made instead of them yokes of iron. Okay, God's saying it was going to be bad. But now, because you've prophesied peace to these people, it's going to be worse. The captivity is going to be worse. Not just a yoke of wood. A yoke of iron is going to be on your necks. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. And I have given him the beasts of the field. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Don't you wish there were more preachers willing to talk like this to false prophets? I do. I wish there were more people sitting in pews that would hold their preachers responsible. I just wish that this standard was held in the church today. Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. Don't you wish God still did that? (laughs) That would make things easier. You turn on TBN one day and there's nobody on there. You go, oh, God removed them from the face of the earth. That worked out well. Behold, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you are going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. Okay, this tells us that false prophecy is not neutral. False prophecy is not just another person trying to lift themselves up a little bit. It's not passive. It is, in fact, rebellion against God because God's word says what God is going to do and this person is out saying God spoke to me and said something completely different and so they're actively acting in rebellion against God and because of that rebellion God removes him so Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month and as we know from second Kings he was wrong He was completely and totally wrong in everything that he prophesied. So there were and there are plenty of people who claim to be speaking for God. John writes in the New Testament, test the spirits, because not every spirit is from God. Not everybody who claims to be speaking for God is speaking for God. The safest place to be is to just stick to his word. This is what God has said, and not express a whole bunch of opinion, and certainly not get hyper-spiritual and start saying, God has talked to me. I was in my living room this morning and brushing out my beard when suddenly God said, hey, Jim, I got something for you to tell these people. there's, There's nothing like that anywhere in the Bible. There is only... God's prophets chosen by God, sent to God's people in order to tell God's people the things that God has said. And in this day, the safest way to tell people the word of God is to just stick to the Bible. And so that's what we do here at GCA. We just pound the word, pound the word, pound the word. So if you get nothing else out of tonight, if you leave here, get in your car, turn to your wife and go, what was he talking about? If you get nothing else out of tonight, recognize that whether it's old or whether it's New Testament or whether it's the beginning of Genesis or whether it's Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, which we're going to look at, whether it's Pauline theology or whether it's Jesus walking around with complete authority over everything, it is God who is absolutely sovereign over his creation and he declares time and time again, everything is mine and I can do what I want with it. And therefore, we have to assume that whatever happens is what God intended to have happen. Because there is no chaos in his universe. There is no happenstance. There is no luck or chance. 
Nothing happens that catches God by surprise. Remember the old preacher phrase, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? <laughs> nothing ever happens that God is caught off guard by. God is in charge of his universe, and that can give you great comfort because not everything in this lifetime is going to be chocolate and feather pillows and roses and rainbows. Every once in a while, it's going to go hard on you. But the God who is in charge is taking you through it on purpose for his purpose in order to grow your faith, your confidence, and your dependence on him because he's in charge of his people. You got all that? Yes, sir. It doesn't matter where you look in the Bible. You keep coming back to the same theology. God's in charge. Right? Right. Yes, sir. All right, then I'm done. We didn't get quite as much stuff as, as I planned to tonight, but there's always next week. So come back next week and, oh, we've got so much to do still. More Jeremiah and then Daniel. And, and then the end of the, the book of Second Chronicles, which is running kind of parallel to Second Kings at this point, is going to say, just before the book is closed, it's going to say that Cyrus rose up. And that's going to take us into the time of Esther and into the time of the, the Persian kings. And there's just so much still to talk about. And it's all going to redound to God's glory. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.